ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm joined by Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Today, we've got a couple of guests joining us. First, we'll be joined by CT contributor Hannah Anderson to talk about the Barbie movie and what's happening at the top of the Christian music charts this week. Then, Sarah Isger will be joining us from over at The Dispatch to talk about the latest indictments against former President Donald Trump. So, stay with us. Joining us now is Hannah Anderson. Hannah is a writer and a regular contributor to Christianity Today. Last week, we published her reflections on Barbie. The article is titled, Barbie and Ken Go East of Eden. You'll find the link in our notes. Hannah Anderson, welcome back to The Bulletin. I'm glad to be here. All right. So quick head count. Has everybody seen Barbie at this point? No. Yes. Russell, Russell what? Has not seen I've seen it twice, so I'll make See? up for you, Russell. So we have four <laughs> viewings of Barbie amongst the four of us. There you um, go. Yeah. I, so I saw it yesterday. As my yesterday was my daughter's sixteenth birthday, and she wanted me to see it with her. She'd already seen it, so we went and saw it. I've done the full Barbenheimer circuit, but it took me two, took me three <laughs> days, I guess, to do the two. But anyway, in any case, I've seen the movie. I loved your piece, Hannah. I think we all did. To get us into the conversation, could you sketch up for our listeners a little bit, a sort of preview of your reflections in the article? What did you see in the story that you felt was significant? Yeah, well, the thing about this movie is that you do go in and see what's on your mind because Gerwig is doing so much. It's so layered. There's so many different things she's pointing to that, you know, I think the number of different takes reveals a lot about the person who's viewing it. So for me, one of the larger themes I saw was this idea of the fortunate fall. So you have Barbie land as kind of an Edenic setting where everything is supposedly perfection, but then imperfection and dysfunction begins to creep in. And part of what Barbie and eventually Ken have to do is venture east of Eden. They have to go into the real world where the ideals that they embody are not being manifest. So that kind of journey outside of idealized perfection is really key to the storyline and to the character development. And that's the thing that caught my attention was that Gerwig seems to be suggesting that the development from plastic kind of identity to full humanity has to go through the mm -hmm. process of moving away from perfection perfection, embracing dysfunction, embracing the difficultness of the real world, the complexity of it, and that that's the way our humanity matures, is to be honest about imperfection. And, and in terms of, you know, kind of theological reflection, there is some tension there for us as evangelicals, particularly about how we understand failure or mistake. And particularly within the Genesis account over church history, some theologians have suggested that even Adam and Eve's failure was an opportunity for grace and redemption to be manifest in a way that we otherwise would not know. So those are some kind of the themes that I was playing with within the article itself. But I definitely think that arc of leaving Eden, going east of Eden, is well in play within the movie. And there's a significant element, too. I mean, this is one of the things that has made it, I think controversial is probably the wrong word, but certainly the center of a lot of conversation. The way that it addresses the idea of patriarchy, 
men in Barbie world, Ken's in Barbie world are just superfluous, you know, and mm. they're so overt about it in the way it's written that Ken, when he's introduced, like his whole day rises and falls on whether or not Barbie actually notices <laughs> him. Right. And all of his significance is tied up in that bit of recognition. And then of course, when they leave, when they come to the real world, he all of a sudden, everywhere he goes, people are respecting him. They're asking him what time it is. There's this sense of sort of attention and significance that he's never had before. And again, you get to this in in the piece as well, but it's certainly a theme in the movie that patriarchy was bad for Ken because he lived in this world where he had no significance and no sense of place and no value apart from Barbie, right? But it was also bad for Barbie. It was also a world in which, because of the disorder of the relationships, like it wasn't good for women either. It wasn't good for either. Uh, I thought that was a significant thing. You drew that out. I think Alyssa Wilkinson drew that out a little bit as well. What have you made of the culture war responses to the movie, the loud denouncements of it as sort of man-hating and all of that. Do you think any of that's fair? Oh, I think that's just a reflection of the culture wars. That's just a predictable response that the movie became a springboard. I think what Gerwig is doing is actually very nuanced and almost compassionate. I thought her portrayal of Mm -hmm. Ken and the reason he adopted this extreme patriarchy was an explanation that's not actually out in the public square as much. I referenced Christine Mm -hmm. Emba's Washington Post article about the fact that men are lost, and that's part of the reason why these extreme kind of right-wing ideologies are so attractive to them. So I thought Gerwig was actually being very compassionate. I didn't even pick up on the sense I saw a lot of people responding to the claim of male bashing was saying, oh, well, now you know what it's like to be a woman. I don't even think Gerwig mm. was suggesting that. I think she was giving a really <clears throat> nuanced, empathetic explanation for why some of these ideologies are attractive. Mm-hmm. So you think she was kind of mirroring back a patriarchal male viewpoint in a way that broke it down, but without caricaturing it? I suppose. Well, the genius was she did caricature it. She mm-hmm. it wasn't a true but intentionally patriot. caricature. Intentionally, yeah. She yeah. she made it look foolish for Ken to assume that, but also you understood why he did. And the resolution mm-hmm. to some of that in the end, you know, no spoilers, but there's a line in the film where Ken says, "I always dreamed." He's talking about Barbie, the Barbie house. I always dreamed this would be our house. So ownership of the Barbie house had flipped from Barbie at the beginning to Ken comes in with patriarchy. Now it's his house. It's a bro pad. I forget the name. It's like Casa. There's this long name, but. Mojo, (laughs) Casa, Dojo. Mojo, Casa, Dojo. Right. (laughs) But but the kicker is, he says, I always dreamed this would be our house. And so I think Gerwig is actually mm-hmm. moving toward partnership and really mirroring the ways that we are stuck in the gender war and why it's not moving forward. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I loved your article. It is one of the first articles I read before seeing the movie. And it was refreshing to see not all Christians are demonizing this movie, but there are so many pieces that I felt were very affirming. First of all, I totally date myself because I totally had Barbies and I had Barbies of every ethnicity. And it was just so great to see America Ferreira as the lead and to realize this actually wasn't for her kids. This was not about the next generation. This was a Gen X movie. This was for every grown woman who is afraid to say, no, I will not let my daughters throw out their Barbies. So I loved that there was an interview generational connection. But when America Ferreira got to the end and started explaining what it meant to be a woman, the tensions of it, that you have to be, you know, strong enough to stand up, but not strong enough to intimidate, that you have to be, you know, soft enough to be perceived as nurturing, but you can't be too, you know, forceful, all of the nuances. I almost stood up in the theater. I was like, she, she better preach that. But it didn't just resonate with me as a woman it resonated with me as a woman of color and the Mm -hmm. dissonance of all of these ways that you have to show up and how exhausting that is. And I even wrote down the statement, you know, when, when um, America was like, oh my gosh, this was amazing. And she made the statement that when you give voice to the cognitive dissonance of what it means to be a woman, you dispel patriarchy. I was thinking, no, you dispel patriarchy and racism and all of the systems that try to prevent us from being all of the people that we have to be in order to show up in this world. I thought it was brilliant. 
Nicole, I'm curious. You mentioned being a mom. How do you think about Barbie apart from the movie? Just with all of the controversy about the body image and the hyper-femininity and the sexualization and all of those questions, how do you work that through? Yeah. So one thing that I thought was really important that Greta Gerwig did in the beginning of the movie, she contrasted the dolls of the past, which were baby dolls. So girls were encouraged Mm. to play with dolls as babies, taking on a mother role with their dolls. Barbie comes along and now you get to be the doll. You don't have to be the doll's mother or to stand apart from the doll. You become the doll. So for me, it resonated with the hours that my sister and I would be Barbies. We would be their voices. We would be, you know, them getting in their cars and getting in their house and getting in the little fake hot tub thing that always leaked. But (laughs) there was, for me, as a child, There was not a sexual element to her. There was not a body image element. There's even a line in the movie where Barbie says to a bunch of construction workers, I don't have any genitalia and Ken doesn't have any genitalia. I mean, it was really silly, but I personally (laughs) never wrestled with Barbie's body image. That is not to say that this is not controversial, but they, it is also to say I would have never wanted a Barbie that was anything other than the ones that I had. Now, maybe that speaks to me and, you know, maybe that's not the truth for everyone, but as a child that never really came into play. And the movie really does because, you know, when she comes to the real world because there's a troubled character that she's trying to track down and when she confronts who she thinks this is and basically says, hey, I'm Barbie, I'm here to help you, (laughs) this girl just (laughs) unloads on her about how she's the problem and, you know, all of those things, the body image, you know, and the sexualization and this, that, the other. And so, I, yeah, I, I thought the way they threaded the needle on some of that while also, again, this idea that part of what the idea of Barbie was was that she could be anything. She could be a teacher. She could be a Nobel mm-hmm. Prize winner. She could be a president. She could be an astronaut. And then when they pivot into the real world, like part of what's brilliant about the storytelling is the expectation that she expects that when they get to the real world, it's the world that Barbie has now fixed. There mm-hmm. are no problems in the real world because Barbie came along and told women they could grow up and be whatever they wanted to be. And so she's expecting, you know, the Supreme Court's going to be all women, of course, you know, mm-hmm. and all of this. <laughs> and then they get there. And, and I think my favorite line in the whole movie is she and Barbie and Ken are walking down the street and Ken is just, you know, in heaven because he's in, he, people keep talking to him and asking him the time and things. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, isn't this place awesome? And she goes, why do I feel vaguely unsafe all the time? Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That was perfect. (laughs) That was perfect. I am just amazed by what Gerwig is getting away with here because Mm -hmm. I found it to be a deeply affirming statement on sexed humanity and and Mm -hmm. the humanness, Mm -hmm. it's what's underneath it. And that's what everything is pushing toward, that these dolls, these caricatures have to come into their full humanity. And even the tensions around womanhood or manhood are all driven by this attempt to become fully human. And that's kind of resolved. Mm -hmm. I saw it with my 17-year-old son. And again, no spoilers, but that's resolved in the last sequence the question of Mm -hmm. humanity. And he told me, he's like, I Mm -hmm. thought it was a mid movie until we got to that last sequence (laughs) when the the humanity, literally the last line, last line. Exactly. And it's deeply sexed. Mm -hmm. It it is Mm -hmm. an embrace Mm -hmm. of sexed humanity. And I was like, I was Mm -hmm. shocked that she's not getting more pushback from the left because of some of the things that Mm -hmm. she was Mm -hmm. working with in it. For having an actual binary yes. understanding of gender. And it's a biological. Mm-hmm. It's rooted in biology. Mm-hmm. And yes. I don't know if they just haven't heard it yet or figured it out yet, but it is amazingly conservative yep. in that way. Yeah. Yes. I was shocked. And perhaps by, I was shocked by that. So let me introduce this because I I I'll I would affirm everything that's been said up to this point. But I'm gonna throw a little my personal quibble wrench into the movie, which is that <laughs> my critique of the movie would be that I think it suffers from one of the major problems of the moment, which is that I still don't think at the end of the day, I don't think they knew what to do with masculinity at the end of the Mm. movie. There was not a positive masculine vision. Now, some people Mm -hmm. have said, well, Mm -hmm. there's Alan, you know, so Michael Sarah's (laughs) character is a, you know, is a non-toxic male. It was hilarious. And I'm like, come on. (laughs) Michael Sarah will lead us to the future. (laughs) 
Exactly. That's but, but I do think, you know, and, and there was a fascinating article in The Hill this week. This is something else we can we can note in the show notes. And it was actually referencing research that Gene Twenge has, has recently published about this growing polarization between men and women and the way the right is becoming this realm of, of a certain kind of masculinity, this, this quote unquote mm. toxic masculinity. And the struggle to speak to men in a moment that's defined by these issues, that's wrestling with these questions about femininity and gender and, and all these questions. Like these are good, important questions to ask. But I, I do think the movie fell short of offering a, a positive vision of masculinity at the end of the day. It kind mm. of ended with, well, we know the sort of bro thing was bad. <laughs> so we shut that down. They lose. Congratulations. Great. Mm -hmm. There was no positive vision, though, in terms of where the movie went. From there. And that's fine. It's a movie. It, it, like They don't have to solve the world's masculinity problems. I think the, the loss of a positive vision for masculinity was because it's not within the scope of Barbie. Like mm -hmm. you're limited mm -hmm. in your resources mm -hmm. that you can bring sure. forward. And half of the point was that there was no developed resource for Ken besides being an accessory. So you just didn't have source yeah. material to build out positive masculinity. But I hear what you're saying because I'm raising a 17-year-old son, a 14-year-old son, and trying to prepare them for a world that doesn't have a vision of masculinity and doesn't even have mm. a place to develop it is very much on my mind. I wonder if some of our loss of masculine modeling is now you're going to have to stick with me for this is because we live in a consumptive, easy space and that a lot of masculine ideals come forward in times of duress. So the things mm -hmm. that masculinity offers community are the things that we need in hard times, in war, in mm. survival, in, you know, like we need men to use their strength to step up in those times. And so there's this question of how does a man embody his body in a, in a space of consumption? And so you do have this bodybuilding and you have fitness, but to what end? And so I think mm. that kind of telos is absent in our society. And I think maybe we need to create a vision of some kind of way of being that goes beyond consumption. And, you know, that's, that's a bigger mm -hmm. question, but I, I think it's linked to larger categories and not just the gender wars. Mm -hmm. Well, that'd be a great longer discussion for sure. And I think that's, mm -hmm. and I think that's definitely fair to the Barbie movie. It was not, not the point, but yeah, mm -hmm. nonetheless. All right. Well, let's take a break and we will come back and pick up the conversation from there. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison-Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so let's pivot to a semi-related topic that is not really a related topic. We'll just dive into it here. So this week at the top of the iTunes Christian music charts, you're going to find an album called Bible Belt Baby. It's by an artist named Flamey Grant. Grant is actually Matthew Blake, a drag performer. Flamey Grant is a stage name. So, so Grant initially got attention because of a collaboration with Derek Webb titled Boys Will Be Girls. Derek Webb is a longtime CCM musician who's been on a deconstruction journey for the last decade or so. In this collaboration that he did with Flamey Grant, they shot this music video during which Derek gets dressed up as a drag queen. So to be honest, like my first reaction to all of this was like, 
just to roll my eyes. I mean, this is kind of, if you followed Derek Webb's work and career over the years, this is pretty typical of his sort of inflammatory stuff. He has a very sort of P.T. Barnum sensibility of knowing how to sort of hunt for hot issues and clicks. And so I, I sort of rolled my eyes when I first saw it. But as the days went on, as, as weeks went on, some of the stories kind of continued. And as Grant rose up on the charts, number one, you started to see the moral panic that comes up among a certain segment of the right anytime drag queens are in the news. So Sean Fucht, John, I don't know how to pronounce the name. I've been told that <laughs> that Sean, so it's, it's spelled S-E-A-N-F. No, that's not spelled right on my paper here. You guys know who this guy is. He's a worship leader guy. He's got the long curly hair, very MAGA. So I've been told the <laughs> correct pronunciation is John Voigt, that his first name yeah. is pronounced John, John Voigt. And his last name is pronounced Voigt. So it's John Voigt, Voigt yeah. is how to know that Voigt you're saying it right. right. Okay. I think that is fantastic. Voigt. Yeah. And I just Voigt. hope he drives yes. a Chrysler LeBaron. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so Sean Voigt. <laughs> Tweets about it, brings it a lot of attention. It spikes up to the top of the charts, and there's all of this like, oh man, moral, you know, drag queens have taken over the Christian charts. But then I saw it popping up other places, and I, I decided to give it a little bit of attention because I saw, a, I actually saw a lot of Christians sharing it and kind of describing it as interesting and provocative in certain ways. These weren't even necessarily like deconstructed Christians, not people on the you know far political right that were ranting. They were just like, oh, isn't this interesting that this thing is happening? So I, I made the mistake. I clicked on the article. And then I clicked over to the site and I listened to some of the music. And the first song that I listened to is was a song that included Esther in the title. I wrote a book about Esther. I have kind of an Esther obsession. I was like, oh, let's see what this is. I'm going to read two verses our editor is going to beep them because this Christian record has an explicit label on them. So the my panel guests here, you will get the full thing. Listeners, will I have sure hope that beep say, button is working. Yes, it's Lord working. Jesus, and, uh, I'm not uh, ready. And if, I'm not and if ready. you want to skip ahead a minute, you've been warned. So skip ahead a minute. Okay, here we go. In the church where I was raised, all the women hid their hair with what can only be called doilies made of lace. That's a Mark Driscoll joke, by the way. But. Yeah, <clears throat> They sat beside their husbands and they never spoke a word because public prayer was not a woman's place, but literally any man was welcome to stand up. For an hour, we would listen to them talk. And I guess the lesson there was that God would only hear a prayer if it came from a person with a Every Sunday, I would find a brand new story with a girl who made some patriarch meet his match. They were painted as conniving, but it wasn't hard to see that secretly most men just feared the... I didn't say that one. Deborah's military mind brought peace for 40 years. The witch of Endor saw through Saul's charade. Of course, Eve said, F this system. I am chasing after wisdom. And Rachel wouldn't let herself be played. Jezebel sure gave him hell, but she wasn't scared to die. If you're with JL, think twice when you recline. Okay, so throughout this song and, and a number of the songs on this album, you know, men are oppressors. Women are sublime. They're all sublime by virtue of being women, including the Witch of Endor and Jezebel. Eve's mistake is a good thing because she's saying, you know. So then you have this phenomenon, right? Like, so, so men are evil always. Women are sublime always. And now I'm going to dress up as a woman and perform mm. as a woman to borrow moral authority from these women that I've celebrated and make myself a hero in the story. Cultural appropriation cultural appropriation right yeah yeah so i you know i think we're polarized in a time where these things happen all the time we're numb to a lot of this stuff like i said i rolled my eyes and ignored it for you know the for several times i came across it and I, the more i looked at it the more disturbing i really see it, it because it, it just seems like yes we're in a moment where there are serious conversations that need to be had in the church about masculinity and femininity this is not a serious conversation this is incandescently stupid. And yet it gets celebrated because they're hating the right people. Mm. Am I making too much of this? Am I just being a grumpy old man about this? I submit this to the panel. <laughs> well, if you are, there, there's two of us. It, it's not often that you have a perfect alignment of stupid and evil. And this is one mm. of them. Because what you see here. Two, it's similar to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence with the mm -hmm. Catholic Church, kind of an intentional provocation for the point of desecration. Yeah. It's a sad time 
but that's what's happening. There's a way to get attention by, I mean, when, when Jezebel's a hero in your, in your lyric, you know what you're doing. And for me, this is not just one person trying to stir a system. This also points to the fault, I think, of this gradual secularization of Christian music in general. I mean, why was this song, why was his album able to go as far as it did? It was not just because of a tweet. It was also because Christian music and gospel music has become so inspirational that it lacks the biblical depth to really be considered any real theological statement. So anyone can be inspirational. I mean, we we have so many Christian artists that are kind of towing the line because they know there's more money and more popularity if your song can be played on two stations, if you can get a gospel, just enough hint so that people know that you believe in Jesus and you're talking about Jesus, but just enough ambiguity so that people know it's just inspiration. This is why he was able to enter this space. And by the way, he is not the first person to test the system. In gospel music, there was a gentleman who came out as Tone. He was in the early 90s a very popular in 2000s, very popular gospel singer, did a wonderful job until he decided to, after a series of of life circumstances, to come out as gay and come out as a gay activist. And when he was interviewed about his new resurgence, he's come back now as B. Slade. He's now got top gospel uh, hits along with explicit lyrics. And when people ask him, why gospel? Why can't you just go secular? Why can't you just leave this alone? He says, this is my culture. I grew up in gospel music. I grew up in the church. Why should I have to let that go? Because I want to fight for gay rights. And I see the same type of thread happening in the situation. So, Nicole, do you think this is actually, though, uh, reaching the same audience of, of gospel and Christian music? Or is this just that the rankers are counting it as Christian music? See, I don't know. Because yeah. in the case of B. Slade, he is reaching Black Christians who love the accoutrements of black worship, but don't quite have to go with a rigid view of an evangelical Jesus. Mm -hmm. So he's reaching those people on the fringe. And I don't know. I Mm -hmm. think there are lots of people who love the sound of the music without believing the tenets of the gospel. And I think he might be reaching those people. Mm. So I'm going to jump in and stir the pot. Please. Stir it up. Stir it up. Okay. So I listened to that song, Mike, over the weekend because some a, a friend of mine actually sent it to me, and it is as inflammatory and shocking in the actually listening to it, except that it comes with this folksy melody, and it's mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. it's not as in your face as the lyrics are by themselves. So there's this subtlety, there's this subversion, mm-hmm. and I think I would kind of reframe what's happening here is not about gender. Gender is the way this is being manifest, but it's not really about that. It's about systems and it's about performance within those systems. And so the thing that kind of caught my attention from the beginning was that Sean Voigt was acting performatively and the response was also performative. So there is a strong Mm. parallelism between Derek Webb and Flamie Grant and Sean Foy and MAGA politics. That's why Mm. it's so easy to move between the two. And when people deconstruct, they don't actually have to change anything. They're just moving from one performative Mm. space to another. And I see that the gender is in play. That might be the vehicle that's being used. But underneath this, there's a social imaginary here that isn't really about gender. It's not statements about gender. It's about who we project into the world and how we can be present in systems. I think it's deeply subversive. Absolutely. There is intentionality Mm. here. Mm. It's an intentionality of bringing the system down, but it's broader than just what you see on the surface. Mm -hmm. Certainly. No, I wouldn't dispute that it's broader at all. I think what is grotesque about it is leveraging gender in the way that it is. Because I think what's grotesque about it is that, again, like, you know, these are conversations we have on the bulletin all the time. Like, this is a time when the church has serious questions and issues that it's wrestling with related to related to gender, related to the treatment of women in the church, related to the way we talk about women in the scriptures and all those. Those are all very, very valid issues. And so I think what bothers me so much about this 
is that this as a vehicle into that conversation or as a way of leveraging that conversation and then loading it up with all of this other ideology, not just gender ideology stuff, but with so much of, of the, the sort of ideological moral stuff that comes with the rest of the deconstruction that's informing this is really, really troubling. And I think part of where it gets under my skin is by virtue of who's criticizing this, by virtue of the fact mm-hmm. that that Sean Foyt and other people like this are the critics mm-hmm. of this, I think this stuff simmers, gets a pass, gets laughed at, mm-hmm. gets celebrated mm-hmm. more. Yeah. And it's opening the door to a whole lot of ideas and a whole lot of framing that are far more, as you suggest, like far more powrful and frankly, like corrupting and dangerous, right? I think what you're saying, Mike, brings us full circle to the Barbie movie, right? What Gerwig is doing is calling people out of ideology into complexity and into humanity Mm. and it's sexed humanity, Mm -hmm. but it is a call to, whether she knows it or not, it's a call to full Imago Dei. And it is a call to accept the world as more complex than ideology can name and fix. And I think what you're naming, Mike, is that there is an ideology in play here that isn't really going to advance anything. It's not actually resolving. Mm -hmm. It, It just fuels the conflict. And it's fueling the conflict on both sides. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that you see this call away from performance within the Barbie movie. And maybe what we're seeing within this controversy is an affirmation of performance, that performance of ideology Mm -hmm. is good and valuable and we can lean into that. That's well put. Very well said. Well, I think we have exhausted the topic. It's been a busy week for us this week on The Bulletin with these things. So with that said, Hannah Anderson, thank you for joining us for this conversation. We encourage everyone to read your piece, which we will link on the show notes. Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, we will be right back. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. All right, joining us now on the podcast is Sarah Isger. Sarah is an attorney who served in three branches of government, three presidential campaigns. She's an editor at The Dispatch and a contributor to ABC News. And she's the host of the Advisory Opinions podcast, the Dispatch's flagship, if I'm getting that right, it's Absolutely. the flagship legal podcast yeah. of, the, of The Dispatch. <laughs> and she's also a regular host of The Dispatch podcast, their weekly news roundup show. She joins us now to talk about the new criminal indictments against former President Donald Trump. Sarah Isger, welcome to The Bulletin. Thanks for having me, y'all. So this is the third criminal indictment against Donald Trump. It's the second federal indictment, the second indictment brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Maybe to get our listeners into it, help us understand what are the crimes he's being charged with and how do these differ from the other federal indictments related to the Mar-a-Lago case? Absolutely. So let's just do a quick refresh of where we've been so that we know where we are. So you have the first indictment out of New York. That was a local district attorney there indicting him for campaign finance-related violations because of his 2016 payments to Stormy Daniels, quote-unquote, hush money payments to a porn star he was having an affair with. Again, sort of the allegations there. 
move forward then you have this florida indictment from the special counsel this is for the willful retention of national defense information and obstruction related to that retention and then fast forward to our second federal indictment as you said this is about donald trump's actions from election day to january 6th and while most of the time when you ask me what was he charged with i would tell you what the charges are In this case, and it's something we'll be talking about more, no doubt, the charges themselves are not that helpful because unlike the Florida case and even unlike the New York case where the charges were, you know, the willful retention of national security information kind of tells you what the thing is that we're talking about here. They're very broad, vague criminal statutes such as conspiracy against civil rights, things like that. Why? Because unlike, you know, I've seen the robbery example out there. Yeah, except robbery is a crime and the crime is called robbery. There is no crime of sending in a fake slate of electors or calling state officials and trying to get them to, you know, quote unquote, find voter fraud that would change the outcome of an election. So instead, you have these large civil rights fraud on the United States statutes Here's the conduct that they're charging, though, because I think that's what we want to focus on. There's four areas. One, pressuring state election officials to change the results, organizing fake slates of electors, using the Department of Justice to pressure state officials to change their electoral votes, and attempting to get the vice president to refuse to certify the results. Now, to go back to my robbery example, for instance, robbery is the name of the crime. We sort of all know what robbery is. And in robbery, I don't really need to prove that you knew the money belonged to the bank. What I need to prove Mm -hmm. is that you came into the bank, that you had a gun, and that you asked for the money. Those are the elements, again, roughly speaking, of robbery. Because it's a really specific crime. Here, where Congress has passed broad criminal statutes like this, in order for them to be constitutional, to give people notice that they're doing something wrong... Congress included what we'd call a specific intent element, meaning let's take the conspiracy against civil rights. Mike, if you're on your way to vote and I rob you, if they want to charge me with a federal crime and I can show that I just robbed you for your watch, that's just robbery. I just wanted your watch. I wanted money. If they want to charge me with that federal conspiracy against civil rights, they have to show that I didn't rob you for your watch. I robbed you because I wanted to intimidate you from going to vote. That's my mental state. They have to prove my intent. That's what we're all talking about when we talk about why this is a much harder, more challenging case for the prosecution than, let's say, the Florida case, which is, frankly, pretty cut and dry. So one of the things I think some people were expecting or looking for in the case was the possibility that there would be charges directly related to the events of January 6th inciting a riot, I think was the typical language for this. And obviously that was not in there. Did it surprise you that those charges in particular were not there, given the way this has been presented up to this point? So a few notes on that. One, before I get to what you actually asked me. So I'm going to ignore your question and answer some other things around it first. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) True lawyer style. Right. So one, the judge that's been assigned to this case, it's sort of fascinating because this is going to happen in D.C., She has overseen, I think the number is 58 of these sort of, let's call them foot soldier cases in January 6th, the people who actually entered the Capitol and were organizing that violence that day. So she's going to have a whole lot of background in what happened on January 6th and the events that you're talking about, regardless of the fact that Donald Trump wasn't tried with it. And I think there's going to be an overall sense of like a foot soldier mob boss atmosphere here for the judge certainly, and maybe even the jury in the sense of, you know, you're coming from the community that has been hearing these cases. So on the other hand, you're right that Donald Trump was not charged with those events on January 6th. The only thing related to literally the date January 6th is his efforts to persuade the vice president not to certify the election. And they argue that he used the violence that day to help buy him time to work senators, work the vice president, et cetera. But he's not charged with incitement. I have talked to David French, who I know is a friend of the pod here. <laughs> and you know, we've talked about this a lot. David and I come down differently on this question. And I bring it up because it's all to say, smart people I respect disagree with me on what I'm about to say. I don't think that it was actually very close whether you could charge Donald Trump with incitement that day. 
nor do I think that we want the federal government charging Donald Trump with incitement that day, which are slightly different points. I'm a free speech absolutist. And if you want to prove incitement, it is not enough to show that person A said something and person B did something violent. You have to actually show that person A both wanted that outcome and knew that their words were likely to help lead to that outcome. It's almost more of a like, you know, in conspiracy language, there has to be like an overt act. So like, if I say, man, I would really pay to have someone kill my husband. I did not do anything wrong <laughs> if I just tell you that on this podcast. But if I happen to know- In the letter of the law. Just, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> to be clear. I forget what podcast I'm on sometimes, right? Like, this is this right, podcast. Right, right. You guys are judging me. That's great. Uh, <laughs> but if I know that you murder people for money, Mike, and then I say, man, I really wish someone would kill my husband mm-hmm. for money- then I've committed an overt act potentially. So Mm -hmm. context matters. And where I think David French sees it is like, yes, well, the context is he knew there were armed people in the crowd and he's telling them like, this is your chance. I think that trying to draw a line between that and a normal political rally that we all use war-like language, violent type language in metaphorical fashion, I don't think we want to start saying that that's incitement now. That is so interesting. I so appreciate your perspective, the legal perspective, because I think there are so many challenges in this indictment that lead me to believe the average person, when this goes to the court of public opinion, which it will do when it's time for elections, they will not be thinking about the legal elements. They will be thinking specifically about, well, I mean, was what he did so wrong? And I was reading an article in New York Times that suggested that part of the other issue here is the fact that there were Republicans who understood exactly what Trump's intent was, but they tried to cover it up. They had an opportunity to say, not only should he be indicted, but he should be kept from running for office again, but they chose not to take that stance. What do you make of that? What do you think is fueling this lack of opposition to what I think, again, public opinion would say is very wrong, but there are so many legal loopholes that allow things to happen, like he's still allowed to run for office. What do you make of that? So two things here. One, I think you're hitting on something that goes to the heart of my problem with this indictment and what I think as a country we need to be grappling with. What are the wrong things? that we all agree are morally wrong, outrageous, Mm -hmm. reprehensible, pick your word. I think everything listed in this indictment falls under that category for me. Mm -hmm. But not everything wrong is criminal. What are the things that should be handled by political accountability, either at the ballot box or through the impeachment power, for instance? Mm -hmm. Congress has the power to impeach presidents for high crimes and misdemeanors. And do you know what the legal definition of high crimes and misdemeanors is? whatever Congress says it is. It is a political Mm. power of Congress. Mm -hmm. And that failed. He was not convicted. I can be upset about that, disappointed about that, and still not believe that therefore we then just turn to the criminal system. And then we criminalize the conduct because Mm. by God, someone did something wrong and we need to punish them. They deserve punishment. I think that's where as a lawyer, I don't feel Mm -hmm. that in a way that normal people, well-adjusted people do. (laughs) Um, And I'll give you an example. You know, I think OJ Simpson murdered his ex-wife and her friend. I think he killed two people in cold blood. He got acquitted of that. So justice, meaning this person deserves to be punished for something that they did wrong, would say, well, we should just try him again until we get a conviction by God Mm. because someone did something wrong and they should be punished. But of course, We have a legal system that prevents double jeopardy, right? To be tried for the same crime twice. That means that we let guilty people go free, including murderers go free, Mm -hmm. even if we know they're murderers. If you can't Mm -hmm. prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, and if more importantly, the most American thing that we have, if you can't convince 12 citizens of this country beyond a reasonable doubt, then we do that. So I mentioned all that because again, We don't treat every wrong as a criminal wrong. And I think that's where this indictment is a much harder call for me. Is this a criminal wrong or is this a political wrong that we're trying to shoehorn into the criminal process? Again, very different than the Florida indictments, which I think are solid, airtight. There's not even, you haven't heard Trump's allies even 
push back against the obstruction. I haven't heard a single argument against mm-hmm. that. But let me get to the second part of your question, which is, okay, then why do you have so many Trump supporters willing to sort of put their fingers in their ears and like, la, 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 mm-hmm. la, 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 la. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I thought David Brooks's column today in the New York Times, are we the bad guys? It's not that it explains it 100% or, you know, just leave it to David Brooks to like roll a grenade in the middle of a cocktail party, right? It's more just an interesting perspective on those of us who believe that Donald Trump should have been impeached, won't vote for Donald Trump. Like, are we the bad guys here? But look, here's the part that I think is worth grappling with. Donald Trump's being indicted for all of these things. In the meantime, Hunter Biden was making millions of dollars from foreign corporations by promising, basically, that he had some influence over his father. Why isn't that being investigated by the Department of Justice? Why isn't that being charged under vague defrauding the United States? And so I think there's a lot of Republicans out there and Trump supporters out there who feel like these people always target Republicans. They called George W. Bush a racist, John McCain, Mitt Romney. Now they're indicting our guys. If it weren't Donald Trump, it would be someone else. Thank God Donald Trump is here because he'll at least stand up to them. He's never going to back down. He's never going to give an inch. And someone has to do that. Mm. Now, again, I'm not saying I believe that because I think you'll note that Mm -hmm. no other Republicans have been indicted. There's not some (laughs) DOJ isn't going around arresting Republican governors and et cetera. But, you know, I, I do take it seriously. I take their argument seriously. It strikes me the more I've read about these indictments and kind of the the criticism of the indictments themselves is it's almost like it's a crime in search of a law that can be used to properly prosecute it, right? That's exactly what it looks Mm. like to me. Which like you say, the impeachment process is perfect for this because the impeachment process is, you know, functionally designed to be able to do this on the basis of the, the judgment of 60 senators, like you said, for whatever you know, however they define an impeachable offenses. There is one element of the story that I thought was interesting. I wanted to make sure I asked you about, which is that when it comes to these questions of fraud, right, there's this defense, like I, I keep thinking of it in terms of like the George Costanza defense, that it's not a lie if you don't believe it. Like it's not, Trump's not defrauding anybody because he really believes the election was stolen. Like he, he's mm. he's been utterly consistent in his sort of narcissistic rantings about the election having been stolen. Number one, is that true? Do you see that level of consistency that Trump does seem like the facade has never cracked? And number two, is that a viable legal defense? Is that something that would stand up in a court? So I was one of the first people out there that said this whole trial is going to turn on Trump's state of mind and them being able to prove that. But I want to now nuance that because I think that it's led to some misimpression that somehow you know, first of all, that all crimes have this intent element and that like, as long as you're really crazy, you can't commit any crimes. Prosecutors prove intent all the time, every Mm -hmm. single day. So just because you have to prove Donald Trump's mental state does not mean that that's not, that you can ever do it. They have, we know, plenty of witnesses that say that they heard Donald Trump say that he lost the election. Alyssa Farah, Cassidy Hutchison, you know, they have in the indictment itself him saying things like to Mike Pence, well, you're just too honest. Well, what do we think that mm. meant? <laughs> so <laughs> there's that evidence that could get a jury there. If you're asking what sort of the best defense is, though, yes, it's going to be Donald Trump taking the stand and saying, look at everything I've said publicly. Look at everything I've tweeted don't believe these people saying that they heard me say something secret. When's the last time that I've been saying like things privately and not told them to you publicly and not tweeted my every thought? Mm. I absolutely still think that election was stolen from me. I won in 2020 and Joe Biden's not a legitimate president. I've never said otherwise. Mm. However, so of all of those four things I listed, it's worth spending just a second on the fake electors scheme because while you need to prove that he intended to send in a slate of electors that he knew was not certified by the state through the process, right? The the governor certifies, you know, state rules differ a little, but roughly speaking, the governor certifies the election results of the popular vote, and then a slate of electors meets based on that election result, and that is what's sent into Congress. 
you don't need actually in that one to prove that Donald Trump thought he won the election. What you need to prove is that he knew his slate of electors did not meet those legal qualifications as a slate of electors. So I will asterisk the slate of electors as also, I think, being the strongest criminal charge in this whole thing by far. I think, for instance, the DOJ charge is the weakest. Like a crazy guy from mm. DOJ comes to the president and is like, hey, sir, I've got an idea to do something bonkers. And the president's like, tell me more. And he's like, oh, here, here's some memos and blah, blah, blah. And then they have a meeting and the president's like, nah, never mind. I'm not going to do that. That's not criminal. <laughs> like, I don't even understand why that's included. I think it weakens their case. Whereas the fake slate of electors, that is a chance to be a pretty strong case. I wish they had made it more clear in the indictment. But like, this is the opening salvo. Give them time. So where does this go from here? He's, I believe he's supposed to be, we're recording Thursday morning. He gets arraigned this afternoon. Yes. What should we expect to see unfold from here? Will this be quicker, slower, after Mar-a-Lago, before Mar-a-Lago? Well, we know that Donald Trump's team wants to delay all of these things until after the election. I think they made a mistake by basically advertising that quite so clearly. What you want to do as a defense team is just do the things, right? File the motions that have the effect of delaying the trial so that then when the judge says, are you just filing this to delay the trial? You're like, no, your honor, this is really important legal stuff we need to discuss. Whereas if you file a motion that's literally like, we want to delay this trial, here's our reasons and here's what we're going to do to try to delay the trial, that can kind of backfire on you. Certainly, I don't believe that all of these things will be resolved before the 2024 election. Don't forget, we still have the Georgia indictments coming probably mm -hmm. by the end of this month, we expect. Is there a chance that one of them's resolved before the 2024 election? Yes. And I think this one has a pretty good chance of being the one that is. And by resolved, I mean just literally a trial verdict, because this one also, I think, has the highest chance of appeals that last forever. For instance, mm. there's an appeal right now to the Supreme Court over one of these statutes, which requires a quote unquote corrupt mental state. What does that term mean? What does that require from a mental state? It also, in this same charge, says that you're being charged with, you know, altering, destroying records or documents or otherwise obstructing a government function. Well, is otherwise expanding records and documents to be sort of anything, in which case, why do you have the first part being records and documents? Because otherwise obstruct a government function would include destroying records and documents, or is yeah. otherwise narrowing the definition to things like records and documents, but we can't think of all the words that could be synonyms. So just like, you know, a little bit of a catch-all at the end. That's pending before the Supreme Court right now on behalf of a different January 6th defendant. So you're going to have things like that that could have this appeal last forever. But whereas the Florida case has all those classified documents that, for reasons we probably don't need to get into, I think very easily a defense team that wants to delay could delay for quite a long time on that. You know, you have to go through documents one by one. Well, this document references another classified document. So now we have to go through that document. Well, that document references another classified document. Now we want to go through that document. Here, you don't have any of that problem. The problem that you have, or as I said, the sort of legal definitional, what specific intent needs to be proven, what does corruptly mean problem. You also have a zillion witnesses. And they can argue that like, well, this witness isn't available until five years from now. And we really need mm. this witness. So I think that Trump's team probably has the advantage. It's easier to delay than to move quickly. But mm -hmm. if there is a case that's going to move quickly or quickly-ish in the legal context, at least, this one has a decent chance of moving. Russ, let me throw this question to you. I, I'd just love to hear you, you know, now we've had a, the chance to over the last few days, see the indictment and, and understand what's happening here. How do you think about this in terms of the larger story of not just the Trump presidency, but sort of the Trump phenomenon? Like here we are, indictment number three, indictment number four is coming. His numbers seem really solid. How do you make sense of that in terms of like, what is going on in the human heart right now? Where, again, we've had enough time where we're even seeing polling early polling that that's coming back where it, it seems like eh, this, people don't care or, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's bouncing off of people. We live in a degraded time and an <laughs> insane time. We had a president of the United States lie about losing an election, tell a group of people come on January 6th, it will be wild. We have well-documented evidence of Proud Boys, Oath Keepers and others mm -hmm. saying all kinds of things about being there. 
the president then tells them to go to the Capitol while the Congress is attempting to do its constitutional duty. And they do. And the president sits in the dining room and watches it while they're calling for the murder of his vice president. He criticizes his vice president then on Twitter. And you're in a situation where you have someone who literally said we should terminate the Constitution in order to overturn the election. If there's no accountability for that kind of action, then we do not have accountability for our institutions at all. And I'm Mm. very, very fearful for the future of the country. When it comes to the reactions of people, we're at a fraying time in which, as one person pointed out yesterday, it's for many people, it's not that they are supporting him in spite of these degrading actions, but supporting him because of it. And mm-hmm. I think that's an even mm-hmm. deeper problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sarah, given your experience in presidential campaigns and following these things closely, I listen to your podcasts. I, I know some of the predictions you've made about where Trump you know, stands in the, in the race and all this sort of thing. Has anything changed in your mind about the race? Do you see anything around these cases having any effect on the Republican primary at all? Or are things pretty locked in at this point as you see them? I think they make Trump substantially stronger mm. as a primary yeah. candidate for two reasons. One, all of the attention is focused on Donald Trump and it sort of turns into a, who are you with our team or their team? And for a lot of right. Republicans, well, our team, like I'm not going to be on their team. I'm not going to pile on from the left. And the second reason is because mm-hmm. his challengers have had no real <laughs> answer to this. You know, mm-hmm. the number one polling number that I look at in every single poll is who do you think is best able to beat Joe Biden in a general election? Mm. Donald Trump isn't just ahead. He's winning by 20 points, 30 points on that question. Mm. As long as Republican Mm. primary voters think that he is their best chance against Joe Biden, they're not shopping for another candidate. They're not listening to Mm. other candidates. And until the other candidates are willing to really make that case that Donald Trump can't win against Joe Biden, and frankly, it's getting to be a harder case to make. It was a much easier case six months ago. Then, you know, yeah, I've, <laughs> I, of course, think the Republican primary ended about six months ago. <laughs> All right. Well. On that happy on that note. note. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nicole. Nicole's uh, Sarah, just like got her head in her hands like surrender Cobra style. I, like I just, <laughs> I mean, and this is, this is my frustration. We take the time to understand what is criminal versus what is moral. We take the time to unpack what should have happened with a Congress that should have stopped a candidate from ever being able to run for office ever again. We go back through all of the things that should have happened. And at the end of the day, this is not a legal case. This is a case for the public opinion. So what do we do? How do we sway public opinion to believe that there's something morally, critically wrong here? And that's, that is... I mean, that's why I put my head in my hand, like, Lord, how do we sway public opinion toward what is right if we are living in a space where everything is open for moral judgment, for moral acceptance? It's very frustrating. Well, the good news for me is I get to explain all of these things about the law to you and my worldview on that. You guys handle the morality part. (laughs) (laughs) Fix it. Oh, Lord have mercy. Well, Sarah Azgar, we appreciate you making time to be with us today on The Bulletin. Where can people find you to follow you from here? I don't know. I'm pretty off social media these days, but uh, I'm on Twitter <laughs> at Wig Newtons. That's Wig like the political party and then like Fig Newtons. <laughs> nice. Nice. That's great. Great. And I'm sure you will continue this coverage on advisory opinions. And then you have a new project at the, the Dispatch looking at sort of all of the legal stuff that's running through the political campaigns. You want to tell us a little bit about that before we let you go? You bet. It'll be a new project, mostly newsletter based, but we'll put out, you know, emergency newsletters and little updates called The Collision with me and a great longtime campaign reporter, Mike Warren. It'll be the collision of the legal side of this question with the political side as we head into 2024. Great. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Russell, Nicole, thanks for joining me and we will be back next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producers are Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Our associate producer is Azure Phelps. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. 
music by Dan Phelps, show design by Brian Todd, graphic design by Amy Jones, social media by Kate Lucky. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.